church family, I'll project until it gets figured out. It's such a joy to be here this evening. I'm not sure about you, but as I was just sitting there praying and, and singing, just my heart is so filled with joy that we get to come into the presence of the living God as God's people. And so I don't think we must ever take these moments for granted, even the, the great joy of ending the Lord's Day off together. And so I do want to encourage you to rejoice in what we get to enjoy even this evening. If you have your Bibles, there you go. If you have your Bibles, please turn me to Genesis chapter 44. Genesis chapter 44, we're carrying on in the series in the life of Joseph. We'll be looking at the last three chapters really as the three tests that Joseph gives his brothers. Uh, Genesis 42, 43, and 44. And, and Joseph tests his brothers on the one hand to to help them see their heart, see their sin. But on the other hand, God is working in these brothers to bring them ultimately by God's providence to recognize their sin, to bring them to repentance, and ultimately, as you'll see in the next chapter, reconciliation with their brother. Uh, let, let's read chapter 44 from verse 1 to the end. Uh, let's hear this together. This is God's word. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money into the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money with for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his servant, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is, not, is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from our Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man lo loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we declare ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, 
O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his, fa and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him to me, that I might set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One is left, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces. One left me, sorry, and he's been torn to pieces. And I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to me, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servant will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father." And you so find the reading of God's word may reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray again. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this evening, as we just read your word, we do ask that it would be the prayer of our hearts that we would seek you with all our hearts, that we would not wander from your commandments. Dear Lord, help us to, to store up your word in our hearts so that we would not sin against you. And we ask this because you are indeed a blessed God, the Lord of glory. We plead with you even this evening, teach us your statutes. Show us your will for us so that as we live in this world, in this fallen world with trials and temptations and tests all, about, all around, we ask that you would help us to glorify you in how we live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes we can develop what we could call the plum syndrome. Sometimes it feels like this, we can't catch a break. Just as we think we've turned the corner for better, there arrives another challenge to face. There arrives another burden to carry and another worry to overcome. And when that happens, the plum syndrome kicks in and we think to ourselves, Poor little old me. We can so easily become discouraged, can't, don't we? 
defeated by our challenges and our trials. So easily we can think that God has abandoned us, that He's forsaken us. Oh, dear friends, when the plum syndrome kicks in, perhaps we need to remind ourselves that God not only speaks through painful providences, that's what we saw in Genesis 42, but God often tests us in those unpleasant promises, providences. Although it is true that God doesn't tempt us, He nonetheless does test us. God doesn't stir our affections so that we would sin against Him. He doesn't stand behind our back poking you saying, sin, sin, sin. No, we do that all of ourselves. He's not the author of sin. Go read James 1, 12 to 15. God doesn't tempt us, but He definitely tests us. Now, if that idea makes you uncomfortable, consider Deuteronomy 8, verse 2, where God says to His nation, uh, the nation of Israel, And you shall remember the whole way of the Lord, that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that He might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. And we have many other passages that speak to this, that God tests us. Exodus 15, 25, 16, 4, Judges 2, 22, Judges 3, 1, Psalm 66, verse 10, and on. The point is this, God often tests us. Why? To see what is in our hearts. To see whether or not we will continue in our sin to see whether or not in our trials and our tests we actually turn to Him. Realize God doesn't test us so that He can learn something. No, he, he tests us so that we can learn something, that we can see our own sin, our own failures, our own hearts, and how we even in our need often do not turn to Him. Uh, Genesis 4, 7 and 1 Peter 5, 8 reminds us that sin and Satan are likened to a crouching lion that wants nothing more than to devour us. Well, may I suggest you behind every test, the question is this, will you give in to sin? Behind every test you face, every challenge you endure again, is this question, will you give in to sin? Even for those who are baptized this morning, you're on a spiritual high. But let me promise you that high will quickly pop, that bubble will quickly pop. And you'll be faced with trials and temptation. And the question will be, will you continue in sin? Will you continue in sin and give in to it? Will you be devoured by this lion or will you resist it? Will you flee from it? Uh, that's the question that these brothers are, are dealing with. As they're being tested by God through Joseph, the question is simply this. Will you continue in your sin? Will you be devoured by sin that lies waiting for you? Will you fall into your sinful old tricks? In, in verse 1 to 17, we see how Joseph sets up this test. In verse 1 to 5, after a night where they've enjoyed one another and delighted in one another as a family, Joseph the next morning sends his steward and fills their bags with food and money, and in particular a silver cup, and instructs his steward to accuse them of evil, of stealing that cup. 
In verse 6 to 9, the steward overtakes the brothers, and against the charge of theft, the brothers overconfidently plead their innocence. They even say that whoever has the cup shall die, and they all will become slaves. Yet that's not what Joseph wants. So in verse 10 and 17, the point is made that the person who has the cup, he will bear the consequences. He will become a slave, and all the others will go home. And then in verse 10 to 13, with much suspense and drama, each, pers- each brother bag is searched, and lo and behold, the worst thing happens. It's Benjamin. He has the cup. And in response, in an act of, of collective grief and, and distress, these brothers tear their clothes in grief and horror, and they return to Egypt. Now, now, what's God doing here? What is Joseph doing in this scenario? Well, well may I suggest to you, through this test, Joseph is purposefully unsettling his brothers. Just as they've taken a turn for the better, they've enjoyed a good night out, and now they think they can just go back in peace home, Joseph makes sure that they are met with another challenge. He makes sure that they are faced with another burden, that they're overwhelmed with more worry. He, in a sense, is wanting them to be afflicted with that plum syndrome, poor little old us. And how exactly does he do that? Well, he creates, he recreates the scenario in how they sold Joseph into slavery. He reminds them painfully of their evil action against him. I remember in Genesis 37 how, how they sold Joseph for, as a slave for silver. Well, now they face the threat of slavery because of a stolen silver cup. Uh, John Keard, he makes this observation. He says the brothers had originally sold Joseph to the Midianites for silver, and now he traps them by using an object made of silver to demonstrate their thievery. That is to say, these brothers are being reminded of their own sin, their thievery. They stole Joseph and sold him. See, Joseph wants them to see their sin, to remember it, to be unsettled by it. And from the brothers' perspective, it seems like they just can't get away from their sin. Everywhere they turn, there's another reminder of it. I think that's why Joseph makes this mention of his supposed divination. The cup is described as a cup of divination, and Joseph himself in verse 15 says that he practices divination. Now, we know that's not true, right? We know that Joseph has already made a mockery of the diviners of Egypt when he interpreted their dreams. But, but why is he making mention of it here? Well, he wants, to, he wants his brothers to feel as if they can't escape their sin. He, he wants them to know that their sin will find, it, find them out. They, they cannot hide it. He, he creates the scenario and puts them actually in the same position they were 20 years ago when they sold Joseph into slavery. 20 years ago, they abandoned their father's favorite son to slavery, and now they're in the same position. With the same option, abandon the father's favorite and escape and have peace. Do you see what Joseph is doing? He's entrapping his brothers. He's essentially asking them, will you continue in your sin? 
My message is to you, these brothers are in desperate need. These brothers are perhaps wrestling with that plum. Interesting. They're, they're, they're saying to themselves, oh, poor little old us. They're, they're this desperate year. Not only is Benjamin about to become a slave, and not only will their father die because another son is lost, but the inescapable guilt of their sin will be upon them forever. These brothers are in desperate need, and as they sit there defeated and discouraged before Joseph, you can just imagine the theme song that's in their head. I think it's, I think it's Bonnie Tyler's classic, right? I need a hero. I need, I'm holding out for a hero to the end of the night. You guys know that song? He's got to be strong. He's got to be fast. He's got to be fresh from the fight. Okay, perhaps that's not the song they're thinking about, but, but nevertheless, there is a hero. And the hero in the story is Judah. Judah is an imperfect hero, yes, but he steps up when his brothers found themselves in their lowest point. He steps in and he intervenes, he, he mediates, he, he brings resolution. See, Judah here clearly overtakes Reuben, the firstborn, as the leader of the family. Reuben technically is the firstborn, but he's no leader. In Genesis 42, 22, when the others confess their guilt, remember, Reuben self-righteously tells them, did I not tell you not to sell the boy? As he doesn't confess with the others. Also in Genesis 42, 37, instead of offering himself to protect Benjamin, Reuben foolishly says, well, you kill my two sons. In the eternal words of Clinton, what a wombat. How could killing more sons alleviate the grief of losing a son? See, in contrast to Reuben, this, this failure of a leader, Judah comes forward as the true leader because he offers himself as the mediator for his brothers. I, I'd venture to say that the story of Joseph isn't just about Joseph. It's actually about Judah. It's also about him, about him coming and rising to prominence as a son of promise. Joseph may receive abundant blessing in Genesis 49, 25, and 26, but Judah is the one who receives the promise of the Messianic king. You see that in, Judah, in Genesis 49, 10. Why does he receive this promise? Because he shows us what a true king is. A king who serves his people as Judah serves his brothers. So it's in Judah that the promise of Genesis 3.15 is carried on. It's from Judah that the Messiah will come that will crush Satan and sin. See, in this narrative, Judah is the needed hero. And I want you to see three things very quickly about Judah. First, I want you to see Judah the sinner. In verse 14 to 17, Judah starts as the mediator for his brothers, but first and foremost, he, he, he confesses their sin and his sin. Verse 15, Joseph asks this question, what deed is this that you have done? Now, now many scholars have pointed out that that question, that question in the Hebrew, is essentially asked eight times in Genesis. Genesis 3, 13, 14, 12, 18, 20, verse 9, 26, verse 10, 29, 25, 31, verse 26, and then here in 44, 15. And every single time that question is asked, it's always asked in relation to sin. 
And every single time that question is asked, the person being asked denies it. Whether it's Eve or Cain or Abraham or Jacob or Laban, sin is never owned. It's, it's rationalized. Others are blamed. It's, it's pushed away. It's ignored. Sin is repeatedly unconfessed. The only exception is Genesis 44, 15. For the eighth time, someone is asked, what is this that you have done? And for the first time, someone owns their sin. And it's Judah. Verse 16, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servant. Now there's very clearly double meaning. Your Judah and his brothers are innocent. They haven't stolen the cup. He knows it. His brothers know it. Joseph knows it. But they aren't innocent either. They're guilty of stealing Joseph. They know it. Joseph knows it. And for the second time, in the presence of Joseph, these brothers confess their guilt. See, their sin has found them out, and they own it. Judah owns it. Now, I think just very quickly here, there's an obvious lesson for us. Our sins will find us out. Numbers 32, 23 says, be sure your sins will find you out. And this is important because when you're faced with sin again and you're faced with that test and that question is before you, will you continue in your sin? You need to know you cannot hide your sin. Whether in this life or next, our sin will be uncovered unless it's covered by Christ. And so the first thing I want you to see from Judah then is, unlike many before him, he owns his sin. We see Judah the sinner. But secondly, take note of Judah the servant. Judah the servant in verse 18 to 29, Judah approaches Joseph and he intercedes for his brother. Think of how Moses mediated for Israel before God. Think of how he pleaded with God to have mercy. Well, here Joseph mediates. Here he steps in and he pleads for mercy. In fact, this intercession of, of Judah in this chapter is the longest speech in Genesis. And Judah here isn't just recounting events. No, he's, he's making an impassioned plea. Ten times he uses the word servant, stressing his humility, and not just his humility, his need. He knows that he's in the arms of another. He knows he's at the mercy of another. But, but more than that, 14 times in this speech, he references his father telling us that his primary concern is actually his dad. Uh, Robert Alter comments and he says, his entire speech is motivated by the deepest empathy for his father. Uh, you can see that in verse 34. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Now remember previously, Judah and his brothers cared little for their father. They begrudged him for his favoritism. Yet now, unlike before, Judah shows a deep love for his father, despite the fact that his father apparently only loves the children of Rachel. And so we see Judah, the servant, who intercedes for his brothers because he loves his father. Here, I think, is another lesson for us very quickly, and that is this. There is a need for urgent pleas of mercy. This is how we ought to approach God. 
when our sin has found us out. We mustn't think to ourselves we can just keep it hidden and, and offer a little whimper when we are found out. No, we must plead with Him, plead with God to have mercy, throw our, 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 ourselves at the feet of mercy. One commentator asked the question, say, what is prayer when it is prayer indeed? He answers, the mighty utterance of a mighty need. Well, here Judah has a mighty need and he pleads for mercy. Dear friends, when your sin finds you out, this is how you ought to respond. In fact, when the test is before you, when another challenge faces you, when that question is asked, will you continue in your sin, throw yourself at God's mercy. Escape that sin. But, but that's not even the crescendo of Judah's mediation. Third thing I want you to see is Judah the substitute. Judah the substitute in verse 30 to 34. Judah keeps his word to his father and he offers himself as a pledge for Benjamin. That is to say, he offers to take the place of Benjamin. He offers to go into slavery so that Benjamin would be free. Now, now we can't miss and and shouldn't miss the irony here. In Genesis 37, it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery, yet now Judah offers himself as a slave for his brother. I love how one commentator puts it. He describes it this way. Simply, Judah so feels for his father that he begs to sacrifice himself for a brother more loved than himself. Now, what's caused this in Judah? It's only grace. See, Judah in this chapter, in these chapters, is actually a trophy of grace. When we meet him in 30, chapter 38, he's, he's an unpleasant, despicable, dishonest man. Yet now he's been transformed. He has been changed from one who sells his brother into slavery into one who is willing to sell himself into slavery for his brother. Do you see what God is able to do? Do you see how God is able to take wicked sinners and change them and make them trophies of grace? And it's at this point that Joseph witnesses undoubtedly true repentance. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at repentance from Psalm 51, and we noticed at its core, repentance has three changes three changes. Firstly, repentance requires a, a change in thinking. Well, we see that in these brothers, they recognize their sin. They recognize that they sinned against God. You see that in verse 16. And not just that, there's a change in feeling. These brothers have true remorse. They, they, they have guilt and distress over their sin. You see, you saw that in Genesis 42, 21. And, and not just that, there's a change of living. And again, these brothers repudiate their sin of their past. In, in Genesis 3, 43 and 44, or 34, and Genesis 44 and 33, they, they refuse to do what they've done before. See, God, through painful providence and unpleasant providence, has worked repentance in these brothers. And it's this repentance that actually leads to reconciliation. It is this repentance that leads to, to the brothers being united in weeping and love in Genesis 45. 
Particularly, it's the repentance as evidence in Judah's act of self-sacrifice that leads Joseph to reveal himself and to embrace his brothers. We'll look at that next week. I won't steal Clinton's thunder. But the point to get now is this. According to the flow of these chapters, the necessary component to repentance, the necessary component to eventual reconciliation in this family was Judah stepping forward as a mediator. See, these brothers, in their sin, their sin had found them out, and when they were at their lowest, troubled by their sin, guilty before their sin, they needed someone to stand in the gap. They needed Judah. And your friends, when we are under the weight of our sin, when our sin finds us out, when we are confronted by the consequences of our sin, when we are bombarded with trouble, when we feel defeated and discouraged, we need a Judah. We need a mediator, and dear friends, praise God we have one. Because we have a mediator who has been provided, one who is greater than Judah, one who Matthew 1-2 tells us is the descendant of Judah. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Judah is the first person in the Bible that sacrifices himself for another person. He's the first person that does it, and he points us to the greatest example of someone who does that, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Think at this point, as you look at Judah, you cannot but help see Christ, who who lays down his life for his brothers. See, Judah is a shadow of pointing us to Christ. Like Judah, Jesus was a servant. Like Judah, Jesus was a substitute. But unlike Judah, Jesus wasn't a sinner. Yet, he identified with sinners. He, he took the form of a servant for sinners, and he gave himself as a substitute for sinners. Sinners like you and me, who are often have our sins found out. Jesus says in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you need a hero? Are you holding out for a hero at the end of the night? If you're feeling trapped by your sin, if you're facing the consequences of your sin, if, you're, if your flesh tempts you to continue in sin, then know this, there is a hero who stands in the gap. A hero who intervenes, who mediates, and who brings resolution, who brings reconciliation. When the question comes and the question is asked of you, will you continue in your sin? When sin crouches like a lion at the door of your heart wanting to devour you, dear friends, know this, you have a mediator able to help. You have one who Revelation 5, 5 tells us is, from the, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's the one who crushes the head of the serpent. He's the one who conquers sin and death. And so dear friends, dear church of God, when tested, turn to and trust this mediator. When you face that test, that temptation, that trial, this is the question before you. Will you give in to sin or will you go to your Savior? 
That when the troubles come this week and you're faced with those trials, this is the question. Will you give in to your sin or will you go to your Savior? Dear friends, what a blessed mediator we have. One who draws near to sinners like us. One who becomes a servant for us. One who is the only true substitute that saves sinners. And so may we be a people who trust Him and look to Him even in those tempting trials. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the line of the tribe of Judah as our Savior. Thank you that we have one greater than Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that he is able and powerful even in the horns of the various dilemmas that we face in life when we're tested and tempted into sin. Thank you that he is our hope, that he is our refuge, that he is our king that He is able to overcome our enemies. He is able to hold us up with His everlasting arms. He is able to clothe us more and more again and again in His clothes of righteousness. He is able to perfect us ultimately until we are presented glorified when He returns. And so we pray, dear Lord, that You'd help us to look to Him and trust Him as we face these various disheartening and discouraging trials, we pray that our hearts would immediately run to our mediator, immediately run to our Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.